supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen. Presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening, welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the Asylum Assassin Matt Costa and Science Advisor Matt Moniz, broadcasting live on WBSM as well as on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com and available on WBSM.com as well. Hey, guys, I was checking out some of the U- uh, sorry, the iTunes reviews of Spooky South Coast oh, this week. Yeah, it's, it's been a while since I've been on iTunes, yeah, yeah. you know, because why well, pay 99 cents for music? But uh, <laughs> wait, I didn't say that. Uh, but uh, I was on iTunes for the first time in a while. It's actually because that new U2 song was available for free download. And I said, well, while I'm here, let me check out the... Uh, let me just check out the um, reviews of the show and see how they've been going. So I checked it out, and somebody actually complained about the theme song. Oh, really? They said that they do not like it. It's the only thing they don't like about the program was the theme song. Well, we'll cut it. Just cut it. Well, I don't know about <laughs> that. <clears throat> However, uh, we they said that it, they feel like it doesn't really fit the, the tone of the program, which I disagree. I think it fits perfectly. I think that's what we're all about. Time for Fat Girls. That's sure it is. Remember that somebody emailed us and asked us yeah, if those actual I lyrics. No, I I don't I don't really hear what the actual lyrics are either. What's it like? Time to understand the horror. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I don't hear that. I hear time for this world, which I think would fit the show. We should uh, call our call our friend RJD two. We should and see if he can change the words for us. Well, we talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night, and we have a packed show for you this evening, because in the first hour, we're going to be joined by Ronaldo Lampus. You can go to his website, spiritaction.net, if you want to find out more about Ronaldo and what he's all about. But he has a non-local method for permanent ghost removal. So no matter where you are in the world, if you're having paranormal activity in your home, if you have a ghost, Ronaldo Lampus can remove that ghost from wherever he is in the world, without ever having to step foot in your property. Hmm. I, for one, don't believe that you can even remove a ghost. We have friends who said that they can help spirits cross over and move on. I firmly believe that they believe in what they do. I don't know that we could ever really tell a ghost. If, it, if they can be in this realm, then who's to say they can't come back if they want to? Maybe this moving souls on is just an idea to make the living feel better. Maybe it's... You know, <clears throat> let me give you an example. Sorry to clear my throat in the air. Let me give you an example. Say Moniz is hanging out at my house all the time. I don't really want him there, but he's hanging out there all the time. I thought you said this was hypothetical. Right. Well, so I ask a, f- a friend of a friend, Matt Costa, you know, I say, hey, listen, you know, I really don't want Moniz at my house all the time. Can you help me out and do something about it? And Matt Costa says to Moniz, hey, you know, Tim didn't want to have to be the one to tell you this, but he doesn't want you hanging out at the house all the time. Moni says, okay, I get it, sorry, and then stops hanging out all the time. But if he wanted to at any given time, he could just come back to my house and bother me again. That's true. And I think it's the same type of a situation with spirit removal. You know, you don't want to be the one to tell your ghost, hey, get out of here. So you call in somebody else that can be kind of that buffer, or maybe you know you feel like you need somebody else that can communicate with it. So that person comes in, steps in, and basically is telling the spirit, they don't really want you here. Do you mind just going away? Or 
You mind just pretending like you're not here? Could be one of the two. You could be telling Moniz to stop hanging out in my house, yeah. and Moniz could be like, "Well, I'm still going to hang out here. I'm just not going to let him know that I'm here." <laughs> that sounds Which so I, like Moniz. Totally I was also like going to say that sounds so much creepier, but yeah. Well, creepier yeah. and Moniz. Yeah. So <laughs> there you go. So that's that's my view on spirit removal. However. Ronaldo Lampus feels like he can help you no matter where you are in the world, and he's got some pretty interesting theories behind it. I mean, it's not like it's not like he's just saying I am the super omnipotent psychic medium person that can make a ghost disappear from anywhere. He has a, a theory as to why these spirits are able to be in our realm, and therefore, because of that theory, he's able to remove these spirits. So we'll talk to him coming up in just a few minutes about what it is that he does. And then coming up a little bit later on, we'll hear from our friend Luann Jolly about a fundraiser that's taking place here locally. And then in hour number two, we're going to go back in time to January of 2007. We had just, actually, we were just about ready to celebrate our first anniversary on the air. So that just shows you how long ago that was because we just celebrated our eighth. And we had on the show for the very first time our Gary Patterson, who is probably my favorite guest of all time. You know, I've, I've said that numerous times on the air, and even Jim Mars, who is probably 1A of my favorite guests of all time, is like, no, I can understand that. Gary Patterson, sure. And so uh, we're going to rebroadcast our original discussion with Gary Patterson about the Beatles, about the great Beatle death clues, and about the whole Paul is dead mythology in Beatles music. So I actually had Gary on my Saturday morning show live this morning, and we talked about the impact and the legacy that the Beatles had on America and the world in general, and not just musically, not just pop culturally, but just in every facet of our lives. So I talked with Gary about that this morning. I'm actually going to tack that interview on to the end of the podcast of Spooky South Coast. So anybody that missed that talk this morning that wants to hear Gary Patterson, uh, you can download the podcast of Spooky South Coast, and it will be there at the end of the program. Uh, and I'll try to remember to say something at the end of this show. Uh, for the podcast listeners. But I will play that here on the air for those who have never heard it, because we have a lot of new listeners. And a lot of the new listeners don't go back and listen to every single podcast. They try to go back and just see kind of what works for them and what they're interested in. This one is a must-listen to for anybody that's a fan of things that are strange and unusual. Gary Patterson, one of the best guests of all time on Spooky South Coast. And uh, so we will be glad to replay that for you coming up later on, and we'll do that in the second hour. As always, if at any point during the course of the program, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can do so by calling 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. You can also tweet us at SpookySC. And I know that we've been getting a lot of people uh, following us on Twitter lately and, and posting Week and Weird stories. We'll get to the Week and Weird hopefully in the second hour. If not, you know, time constraints might hold us back this week. But we are trying to make a concerted effort of bringing the Week and Weird back. No, we should bring back What's that? the Backyard Barbecue. That is still that the is, most... That is a request from the chat room. Really? Yeah. They want an, somebody, another one or they want that yeah. one back again? Somebody just listened to that episode and they, <laughs> they want another one. <laughs> we say it every year. We always oh, say we're right. going to do another one. Do it as a video? Do it as, <laughs> well, that's well, the thing. Now we have video. We could do it yeah. as a pay-per-view. We talked about this before. I didn't we, think it was that awesome, but okay. apparently everybody this else your does. station for the South Coast. Hey, thanks for that. Hey. We had talked about doing a, a pay-per-view version of it as a fundraiser for charity. Yeah. Well, right now we have a charity 
<laughs> that we have online ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to raise money to help increase Spooky TV's broadcast capabilities and technologies through our GoFundMe campaign. So if you go to GoFundMe.com slash Spooky South Coast, you can make a donation to help us with the program. We're we're at $185 right now of a $5,500 goal. And now that's not just a pie-in-the-sky number that I picked out. We priced out some computers and everything. So I will say this. If we can hit $500 in donations by the end of February, that will at least get us rolling with getting a little bit better equipment. If we can do that, we will have a backyard barbecue pay-per-view event to try to raise a little bit more money to help with Spooky TV. But anybody who makes a donation will get a free pass into that pay-per-view. We can do that, right, Matt? Yes. We get, how many, we get some free codes. Can we get more free codes if we want them? Or? Uh, I think we have a limit of 10. Okay, so the first 10 people to donate, and I'll include the people who have donated already. So the next eight people to make a donation at GoFundMe.com slash SpookySouthCoast, you will get a free code for whenever we have that backyard pay-per-view uh, podcast. And I promise that we will swear... Oh, yeah. We will say very bad things that we can't say. We'll talk crap about other people in the paranormal field. We will drink. Yes. And whatever else kind of fun you can have. And the top donor, I'll say this to you, the top donor, they can come and be part of the event. Yep. Uh, here's, I, I offer this. Or we'll I, do it at your house. I was I'm not letting say, people we'll, know where I live. We'll offer it as where I live. I'll fire up the uh, grill. We'll get the smoker going and, Yeah. So we'll feed you, whoever the top donor is, between now and the end of February. So there you have it. GoFundMe.com slash Spooky South Coast. Not bad for just making it up off the top of our heads. Right. And you know my barbecues are legendary. Oh, absolutely. You will go home with a full belly and and a head full of scary theories as well. I don't know where you get brontosaurus meat, but... Yeah, damn, it's good. My secret. So, uh, and uh, the other thing that we want to let you all know about now, I had mentioned it last week, I had teased it, but now it's been formally announced to the public. Our Mark Twain House Legend Trips event is slated for uh, April 12th, and we announced it just this past week. We opened up sales to the public on Monday, already half sold out. What? Already half sold out. And I'm not talking like this is a limited event of like 20 people either. What is the capacity? Uh, well, I'd rather not say how many tickets we're selling okay. right now, but we uh, I can tell you off here. But it's a significant amount. Uh, it, it, and we also have half of those gone. So if you want to get involved in this Legend Trips event, and it's really nobody else gets into the Mark Twain house to do an event like this. This is the first time that it's ever happened, and who knows? It might be the only time. So if uh, you want to get into one of the, the home of one of America's most beloved writers and investigate for the spirits there, you need to go to legendtrips.com. Or go to the legendtrips.com link on spookysouthcoast.com and get your ticket. They're just $99. They include dinner, lectures, a historical tour of the property, and hours of guided investigation. But to have the number of tickets that moved just in the past you know, six days, five, six days, is incredible. It just shows you how much people have been waiting to get into this place. So do not wait too long to get these tickets. It's also the only Legend Trips event currently on the docket because the Lizzie Borden event, February 22nd, is now sold out. Mm -hmm. So if you want to come and Legend Trip with us, Mark Twain House, April 12th. We will be having some other events coming up later on in the spring and summer, but this is the only thing that's currently on the radar. So if you want to join us, do so by going to legendtrips.com. How many of our events would you say sell out on on an Just about all of them. 
So 90-plus percent. Definitely. Uh, and especially, you know, the smaller events, that's one thing. You know, uh, the, the, the Lizzie Borden house where we can only have 25 right. people, you know, things like those, you know, I'm not surprised they sell out. But when we sell out 60-plus tickets to the USS Salem, it just shows you. And those were sold out pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing with the Mark Twain house. I think we're going to sell out a pretty big capacity here in probably record time. So. You, you got to get them now if you're going to get them. I can't promise you that if you wait too long, you'll still be able. That's to get what them. I was curious about. If we're doing that big of a uh, sellout, then well, I, you must be able to get them quicker to be able to assure yourself. Yeah, I, I think that it's it's when you get into a location that is a place that nobody really gets into, or it's the first time for legend trips. You got to just assume those tickets are going to go pretty quick because we have a very steady amount of regular attendees who come to all yeah. of our events. So if you uh, if you wait too long, those could be snatched up. And remember, if you want to get first crack at these tickets, we have an exclusive presale. And uh, probably about a quarter of these tickets went in just that exclusive presale. If you're on the legendtrips.com mailing list, which you can get to right from the front page of the website, you get first crack at these tickets. We usually give you a couple of days window ahead of the general public to get involved. And the response is incredible. People are sitting there waiting on social media for us to announce, okay, tickets are on sale now. Okay, check your emails, get that link. And they actually try to race to see who's going to be the first person to buy a ticket, which I don't you know. There's no prize involved, but they want to be the first one. So it just goes to show you just the popularity of these places that we go to. I mean, we, don't, we don't take any of the credit for this, of course. All we're doing is we're getting you into the door, uh, and you'll get the chance to investigate with some great people, uh, both experienced and first-time investigators. And you'll really get into a place that you're not going to get into any other way. All right, why don't we take a break? When we come back on the other side, as long as technology is on our side, we'll be joined by our guest, Ronaldo Lampus, who will talk to us for this entire first hour about how he uses a non-local method for permanent ghost removal. You're not going to want to miss this. And I know that people are going to want to call in as well because it's going to be one of those things where, you know, people are questioning whether or not this can actually be done. They've already been questioning it on Facebook. So why not call in 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. We'll be back in just a few moments here on Spooky South Coast on WBSL. Don't look down, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. I will amuse myself with terror. Spooky South Coast is back. Lean forward slightly. Look straight at the speaker. And listen with a sparkle in your eye. As though you might be thinking, gee, this is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard in all my life. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Blaser here. Along with science assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz, having a little trouble connecting with our guest Ronaldo Lampus. Uh, he is uh, in Italy, I believe. So, you know, not surprising that we have some trouble. We are using Skype to get a hold of him. So hopefully, uh, he's listening and he can know that we are ready for him. Uh, but we do have a call on the line. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Tim, how are you? Hey, I guess you didn't get my message that uh, I was trying to push it off to the second hour, but you know what? It worked out great because we can't connect with our guest. Oh, yeah, I heard. That's terrible. Sometimes that happens with Skype, though. 
Yeah, I've, uh, he was on, and then he went off again. I think that uh, maybe we talked a few minutes too long, and maybe he thought we forgot about him. Oh, poor thing. So we have on the line with us Luann Jolly of uh, Whaling City Ghosts, and she's calling to let us know about a fundraiser that's happening here locally. Yeah, you know, every now and then Whaling City Ghosts just hears something that, you know, really... Your station for the... Personally, cell- you know, we, we feel like we want to help. Um, and there's some great people out there. Um, Hollywood Scoop in Fairhaven on Seven Howland Road, which is kind of right over the, the Crogsall Bridge over there. They're actually hosting this event. And um, Sue Swanbeck will be there doing readings. Donna Stagman will be doing tarot readings. Um, there's also going to be a lot of items and jewelry for sale. Um, they're holding a Chinese auction. And, of course, they'll take donations. Um, there's a little boy. He is 16 months old. His name is Ethan Souza, and he has a really rare form of cancer called neuroblastoma. And he's got a long time in front of him that is going to be really tough for him. You know, it's a good thing he's a little fighter because um, he'll be looking at some surgeries and probably several rounds of chemotherapy. Um, you know, so we just wanted to let the people out there know that this was happening. Um, and if they can't actually make the event, the event is on February 22nd, which is a Saturday. It'll be from 12 noon to whenever it ends, pretty much. You know, as long as people keep coming in and trying to help and they're going to keep their doors open. Um, there's a couple phone numbers that they can call if, you know, if people can't make it personally but they want to make a donation. Um, you know, this family wants to be able to be with their son up in Boston while he's going through these things. And, you know, in order to do that, they're going to need some money to, you know, stay up there and be with this child. All so, right. Um, we do hope that people will show up and make donations. Um Every item sold, every, you know, psychic reading or tarot reading or whatever other kind of service they have, um, half of the proceeds are going to the family, directly to the family. Um, You know, Hollywood does have to at least keep their doors open and make a little bit of money, but, you know, they've opened up their hearts to do this event, and they want to see the money go to the family. Um, So there are a couple numbers you can call. Um, Lori Trueheart is at 508-287-1907. And Jamie Nunes, who runs the Hollywood Scoop, um, can also take the donations in the family's name. Uh, that number is 774-263-5335. You know, so if you're local and you can get out there, then... You know, go out. You're, you're helping a good cause, and I'll make sure that the Whaling City Ghosts um, Facebook page has the link up there, so you can read more about the story and, you know, make a donation if you can. Excellent. And uh, and just one more time uh, again, if you can give everybody the address and the times. Okay, that is February twenty second, from twelve noon on, and it's at Hollywood Scoop at Seven Howland Road in Fairhaven. All right. Thank you so much, Luann. Thanks so much for letting us tell everybody. It's, it's a really good cause. No problem. Hopefully everybody turns out and, uh, and supports this young boy. 
I hope so, poor little guy. My heart goes out to him and his family. All right. Take care. Have a good one. All right. You too. Thanks so much, Tom. Okay. Bye-bye. Good night. And I think uh, we are just about ready to connect with our guest, Ronaldo Lampus, on, on Skype in just a few minutes here. So, uh, again, if you want to check out his website uh, during the course of the discussion, you can feel free to do so. Matt, we have it linked up on the front page of the... Uh... Uh, yep, it should be right there. So if you just go to spiritaction.net or if you go to spookysouthcoast.com and click on Ronaldo's picture there, you'll be able to get to the website and actually find out more about him and about his services and now uh, we are going to have him joining us here in just a moment via Skype. So, and of course, anybody who knows the way that Skype works here at the station, we don't really have any way of testing <laughs> uh, how it's going to work. So what ends up happening is we just kind of go into it blindly and hope that it works. So we're going to do that because, really, that's how we do things yeah. here. We fly by the seat of our pants. What's the worst that could happen? Um, you don't really want to tempt fate and ask <laughs> that question. Uh, we know we know in the past some of the things that could happen. So <laughs> there's there's been some pretty pretty bad things that have happened uh, over Skype. There was that entire interview where we went like about the first ten minutes, and the guest was like, "After uh, hello, hello, <laughs> oh, you really didn't hear anything that we said." All right, we're still getting that still getting the voice radio, message though. for for Ronaldo. Uh, the wonders of modern technology. I'm sorry, I'm just messaging him on Facebook. <laughs> this, that's the good thing about technology is we're able to uh, we're able to do this. We're able to actually connect with people across the world right. and and have instantaneous interaction with them, which that's is a, pretty. That's pretty a great thing about uh, the internet. We actually get uh, we, thank we, you, Al Gore. Yeah, we get much more much more diversity in our guests by being able to go internationally. So we're going to try and do that a lot more often. The more we can get people from around the world and get different approaches and different thoughts and feelings, the better off we'll be instead of our... Like Kazakhstan? Our American-centric. Hey, we're still big over <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. You know what it is? I figured it out. There's only like one computer over there, but that one computer downloads Spooky <laughs> yeah, South. They all share it. Which is why that we're so popular over there. Yeah. I'm still getting his voice message. Hmm. Hmm. I'm just Speaking of that. numbers, how how have our downloads been? Can we share that? Well, no. Okay. <laughs> That's, I keep that number close to the vest to the general public. But they're always good. We don't. Yeah, they are good. good. We. I. I don't like to to put numbers out there because numbers are can right. be skewed, you know. And um, we're we're one of the most downloaded paranormal podcasts in the world. I I can say that much, uh, with a lot of faith. However. You know, when you start, what will happen is we can put out there that we've been downloaded three million times in the last two weeks. And if we say that, then we're going to get people coming after us. Well, how many of those downloads people actually listen to the entire show? You know, how many of that is just you and your, your mom just sitting there pressing download again and again to jump those numbers up? Which is why I don't really get into the specifics of it. Uh, but let's just say that uh, we are one of the more downloaded podcasts in in the world pa- right. paranormal podcasts we're not adam carolla show <laughs> we're not uh we're not smodcast yeah yeah but we still get decent decent numbers and uh sorry so, did uh did we did we ever did we promote the uh, bridgewater triangle documentary live streaming event uh we are uh, the one coming up the, this the thursday last, the last one your the last, last one. chance last chance this thursday february 13th the day before valentine's day 10 p.m eastern time 
And uh, seven ninety nine. I was going to say uh, the the one that happened this past week. Yep. Would did it, did it happen with you know very little problems? Yeah, very little problems. Uh, there was only one person that had uh, an issue, but that was an issue with uh, his browser. So don't use Firefox. <laughs> that so, we figured that out. Yep, it was Firefox. Was the culprit? Google Chrome works perfectly. Chrome works good. Surprisingly, Internet Explorer works really well, which you wouldn't think so, but that works really well. Well, there so you go. So gonna be, it, it's going to be the last chance you have to see this documentary before it comes out on DVD. Sometime when Aaron decides to put it on DVD. Well, I know they're waiting for the television deal yep, to be yep. worked out or, yeah, or yeah. distribution right. rights. There's, there's a lot do, in play. They do do a lot of uh, screenings around here as well. But speaking of which, there's one tomorrow. Are you guys yep. going to go? I will not be. No, that one's sold out too, right? Yeah, I believe so. I might head up yeah. to it. I will not be making it to that one. I have to get up super early on Monday morning. The big boss of my day job is coming in, so I have to be there, like, really early. <laughs> so I don't want to be at a 9 o'clock film screening that's going to go to 11, and then there'll be an hour Q&A afterwards, and I get home at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, and i got to turn around and go back to work at 5, so. Boo. Yeah. Earns. I, I don't know what's happening here. I really don't know. I mean, I'm talking to him on Facebook. I keep trying to call him on Skype, and I'm getting nothing. Can you close the Skype out and restart it? No, he's just not on. He says that he's on, but he's not on. Well, make, well I'll, I've got one other plan that we can do if this fails. I, I don't know. Do we have international calling on our Skype? I don't know. I want to try just calling. Maybe we should just try the regular phone and then uh, hope WBSM doesn't open the phone bill this month. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> that, then we'll have a new GoFundMe campaign right. going on. Because <laughs> uh, well, we won't have jobs. He's not answering that one either. All right, why don't we take another break? I don't, I don't really want to keep taking breaks, but we'll take another one here. We'll see if we can connect with Ronaldo Lampas, our guest, uh, and if not, we'll figure something out. So why don't you stay tuned? We'll be back with more in just a minute here on WBSM's Spooky South Coast. Good evening. Uh, do not attempt to adjust your radio. There is nothing wrong. We have taken control as to bring you this special show. Spooky South Coast is back. Everybody be cool. You be cool. With you, along with the sign assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz. That is the sound of us trying to call Ronaldo Lampas. And it doesn't seem like we're going to be able to make this connection with him. Yep, just keeps ringing and ringing and ringing. Hmm. Yep, sorry about that. Well, moving on. I have to let him know. We're just going to have to do it another time. Yeah. It oh well. That's what it, it was an interesting topic. I was curious to see how he was going to do it. I did leave. Uh, I did leave the Skype open, so you know maybe he joins us. Yeah, maybe he'll uh, he'll chime in. Uh, four attempts since he logged in to mm. try to connect. So yeah. We'll see what happens. But, uh, again, you can go to his website, spiritaction.net, if you want to find out more about what it is that he does. We do have the show is pretty much booked up for the next couple of weeks, uh, months, actually. So we'll, we'll try and squeeze him in where we can. 
next week we'll be joined by Sophia, the ghost host, Sophia Temporelli, and psychic medium Cassidy Ray. Now, these are two young women who are both, I believe they're both under the age of 18, and we're going to talk to them about not only the increased focus on women in the paranormal, but also younger women in the paranormal. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but there seems to be a lot more, um, uh, you know, some of the, the young folks are really starting to get involved in paranormal research, and that's been happening over the last five, ten years, but it's been a lot of young guys who are getting involved. Now we're starting to see a lot more young women getting involved. Because of Zach Baggins. You think so? I think so. <laughs> like, this is my way of meeting Zach. But uh, <laughs> the the good thing is, uh, Sophia and, and Cassidy Ray, they are two people who are, um, you know, they have their talents and they have their abilities, but they're they're still learning. And we're going to catch them at just the right time when they're just starting to make uh, that transition into becoming, instead of newcomers into the field, kind of the experienced veterans. So we're going to talk to them about some of their experiences and how they see the paranormal field developing from their perspective, because we're already crotchety old men, the three of us. That's true. You know, we've already decided that we're disillusioned with a lot of what yeah. goes on in the paranormal, and we've already decided that we are uh, forever going to be, you know, just grumpy about it, and, you yeah. know, nothing's going to change our mind. So we're able to have that approach, and that's fine, but we need something to counterbalance that. So Sophia and Cassidy will be able to do that for us. Uh, we also have, coming up on an upcoming edition, we'll have the girls of Paranormal Expedition, I'm sorry, the women of Paranormal Expedition, Tina Storer and Rachel Hoffman, to talk with us about their new venture, which combines the world of true crime and the world of the paranormal. So that'll be coming up uh, in March. Uh, on March 2nd, I'm trying to do the math in my head of what the dates are for March. I suppose I could just as easily look at a calendar. That might work, too. Uh, March 1st, we will be joined by Derek Gunn, uh, who will be here okay. in the Spooky Studio talking with us about some interesting topics that we didn't get to cover in his first appearance here on the program. And uh, also coming up, we will have, I think, if we can pull it all off, on February 22nd, we are going to be uh, not on the air, of course, because we'll be at our Lizzie Boyden Legend Trips event. So I'm thinking that what we'll do is we will try to have at least a taped program for podcasts, and we'll try to get it on the air here at WBSM. Now, I don't know if you can see, I got this, uh, hold on. Okay. I got this giant manila folder here, and, and feel that. That's pretty heavy. There's a lot of documentation oh, yeah. in there, yeah? A lot of documentation. You can verify that yes, for the public? Yes. yes. This is all paperwork that was sent to me by Norma Sutcliffe, who lives in the Conjuring House. And this is all the documentation that she has that she's found, her research and, and working with a couple of other researchers, that challenges what Andrea Perrin has said and what Hollywood has said about that home and the history of that home. So we're going to talk with Norma about her research and what she has found. Your station for the South and we'll Coast. And we'll find out also about the impact that The Conjuring has had on the Sutcliffs and their home. So she's going to be joining us. It'll either be for podcasts only. We're going to try and get it here on the air. I tried to get her to let us go to the house and sit down and record with her. I thought that would have just been phenomenal to sit there in the house and interview her. Uh, but it seems like she wants to do it over the phone. But, you know, we, you never know. I'm kind of a charming guy. Working magic. Might be able to. But uh, either way, we will find out the inside story of that home. And we'll find out about what has popped up. In her research, because really it's, I was going through it today, and there's some stuff in there already that it's like, well, and you know, and you really can't, you can't fault 
Andrea Perrin for her research because when she conducted her research, it wasn't as accessible as it is these days. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like you can just go online and look for everything. I'm, and, and Norma couldn't even find everything online. They're, they're doing a lot of, you know, boots on the ground research in libraries and town records and things of that nature. Uh, so you know, you're going to find more stuff is going to become unearthed as time goes on. So there will be some contradictions in the research as well. And Hollywood, you really can't take anything that they say because they're just looking to tell a story. They want to just take a story that they already have in mind and try to apply it to a movie that they're putting together so it becomes based on a true story. So you never know uh, exactly how much of it is truth and how much of it is fiction, but we will find out from Norma, at least based on her research. So I'm hoping that you know we've had Andrea on, and Andrea has shared her side of the story. We'll have Norma on, and she can discuss her side of the story. Then maybe somewhere down the line we can have the two of them on together, and we can go back and forth and debate uh, some of these points that happened about the Conjuring House and about the history of that property, about Bathsheba Sherman, and all that stuff. So... There you go. That, that's what we have on the docket coming up. And there's so many other programs that we will have planned in the weeks ahead. Uh, I, I know that uh, I think Stephanie Burke is going to be our co-host on the night that the Paranormal Expeditions Girls come in. I have an idea. I haven't floated it by her yet. There's a couple Saturdays in May where I won't actually be here. And I, Are you guys coming to uh, Parahistory Con the first weekend in May in Lake George, I, New yep. York? I'm going to be there. So you're coming. Moniz, you want to go? Yeah. By go, I mean drive. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. <laughs> so that's a four-hour, well, if Moniz drives, the four-hour trip to Lake George, or the six-hour trip to Lake George becomes a three-and-a-half-hour trip to Lake right. George. So, and, and believe me, I've driven long distances with Moniz. The time flies by. Yeah. You have great conversation the whole way, and time flies by. So, uh, but we'll all roll, we'll roll three deep, and whoever else wants to go with us to Paris History Con, too, because the more people we get in the car, the more, the Cheaper gases when we split it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, what about places to stay? Is uh, there... Yeah, we'll talk about that off the air. Okay. I've, uh, <clears throat> yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about it. You'll be all set. All you right. won't, you won't have to sleep in the truck this time. Okay. So, uh, but uh, if I start telling everybody, you know, yeah. about the sleeping arrangements, they're all going to want to crash there. But, uh, the, the, Parahistory Con 2 is coming up in the first weekend of May. And then the second weekend of May, I'm going out to, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, for, get this, a pro wrestling event and a ghost hunt followed after that. So our friend Brian Dorn is bringing me out there for uh, to, to take part in this wrestling event. And I'm still throwing the challenge out there to Tim Dennis from Darkness Radio, who does a lot of wrestling with this organization. He does a lot of work with his wrestling organization. I'm talking EMF detector on a pole match. I don't. Yeah, I think that awesome. works out fine. And, uh, and, and the winner is the paranormal champion. Yep. Of, of this wrestling federation. I think they should shut off all the lights and you guys should do it out in uh, night vision. Yeah. We could do that. <laughs> we could definitely do that. And uh, so, you know, we'll we'll see if we can get Tim, Tim to accept that challenge. Uh, and then, yeah, it's, uh, see, Ronaldo Lampus just sent me a message, too. He's having a problem on his end, too. So something's mm-hmm. kind of causing us from being able to connect here. So I'd, it's, uh, it's definitely, in, as he said, spooky forces, and I have to agree. Uh, there's there's some sort of gremlins in the technology there, so I'm going to be out there that weekend. So here's what I'm thinking: What if we had Stephanie come in and host the show that night with you guys while I'm out in Minneapolis, St. Paul? Would you guys be cool with that? Sure. Yeah. All right. Totally. So I'll uh, I'll mention that to her because I haven't asked her yet about it, but she already knows. Right. That's she should. Yeah. So uh, and then uh, of course uh, April twelfth we won't be here either because we're going to have our Mark Twain House Legend Trips event. So coming up in the next hour, I do want to play 
this R. Gary Patterson interview from 2007. And I think, I know you were here, Matt, for that. I think you were here for that too, yeah, Moniz. I was. And uh, so that was our first time ever talking to Gary. We've had him on. I remember the, the second time we had him on, uh, neither one of you could make it. It was the first time I was ever by myself for Spooky South Coast. And I was terrified because I really, even to this day, I still don't know what I'm doing over here. I come in here every I come in here every Saturday morning. I fill in all the time during the week, uh, and I, I still am not a hundred percent certain of what I'm doing. But that time I had no idea what I was doing, and it was fresh off the death of Amy Winehouse. Like it had happened that afternoon, and she had joined the Twenty Seven Club to be a, a, one of these artists who passes away at the age of twenty seven. So uh, I contacted Gary. He said that he would be glad to come on. I think he actually blew off coast to coast to come on our show. Really. Not sure. Nice. And so uh, he joined us, and we discussed it. We had a great talk. Well, I think he ended up making them wait, or he, he was going to take. He was only going to give us like forty-five minutes, but he ended up uh, taking longer. I'm going to have to just turn that off there because we can't. It we're up against. We have ten minutes. Uh, so uh, the Amy Winehouse discussion was supposed to just be a brief one, and it turned into an entire show. And Gary really? was more than happy to stay with us. So. Uh, you can always listen to that one as well, but we're going to replay his original appearance here where we talked about the Beatles' death clues, the idea that the walrus, uh, from his book, I'm sorry, The Walrus with Paul, the idea that Paul McCartney died in a car accident in the 1960s and was replaced by an imposter who then went on to become the Paul McCartney that we've known for all these years. I firmly believe this. All those years ago? Right. 50, 50 years ago tomorrow. Uh, that's that's what we're talking about. Why we're talking about the Beatles? Because tomorrow will be the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' first appearance on Ed Sullivan. None of us were even alive nope. when the Beatles made their first appearance on the on the Ed Sullivan show. However, I know that I'm a huge Beatles fan. I assume that you guys are Beatles fans. All right, I'll... I wasn't for the longest time, but I'm turning around a little. You've bit. kind of slowly become yeah, one. Yeah. Well, I, I threw it out there on the radio this morning. I asked if there was anybody who was not a Beatles fan to call in, and I did get one. But it's our friend Jay, who is pretty contrarian about a lot of things. So I don't know if he's really contrarian about And then we had somebody who called, the guy who calls me Taylor. He was gushing about the Beatles. <laughs> he remembers what he's watching. I love this guy because every Saturday morning, Taylor Cormier used to host the Saturday morning show before I did. Yep. Every Saturday, this guy calls me. And every Saturday, he says, Hey, Taylor! And I'm like, well, no, it's Tim. He goes, hey, Taylor, listen. And, like, he just keeps insisting that I'm Taylor Cormier. So, you know, I don't have the heart to tell him that I'm not. No, that's fine, though. And, I, I you know, if I have to pretend to be somebody, it should be Taylor. <laughs> yeah. So I've got I've got no problem with that. So if he wants to keep calling me Taylor, that's fine. But it's, it's funny, and I can't tell. I sent you a message this morning. I can't tell if it's Dick, if he's doing it to be funny, or if he really just when, doesn't hear when me when I'm telling when him. When you're not here, does Taylor do a Tim Weisberg impression? I don't know. He is he, a master impressionist. He does do. Uh, he does voices. He do, he is a master impressionist. So maybe he does. If he do, do I have very? Um, am, am I right for parody? Uh, I don't know. Who isn't? That's true. Yeah. So uh, maybe he does. If he does, more power to him. Although nobody will get the joke because who oh am I? But uh, I just think it's funny that every week I tell him, "No, I'm not Taylor." But. <laughs> doesn't matter. Doesn't In his world, I'm Taylor, and I don't have the heart to tell him that I'm not. So uh, we will play that R. Gary Patterson interview coming up. Uh, but before we get into that, and I think we will have time for the Week in Weird segment uh, as well, perhaps. 
I'm trying to do the math in my head of how much time we'll have. I think we can do a quick week and weird coming up in the next hour. But before we take a break for the news, I'll ask you guys. I, I was posing this question this morning. You know, what is your Beatles memory? I told my Beatles memory. The first, you know, I, I knew the Beatles from a young age. My mom listened to oldies radio. I knew all their songs. But my first, like, personal connection with the Beatles, I was 10 years old. I had some extra money from a birthday or whatever, and I'm standing there in the tape section of Bradley's. And you remember the tape section with the... And I remember Bradley's. The wall of tapes, and they had those long red uh, plastic cartridge things that they were in, yeah. and they slid into it, and you had, you know, so you couldn't steal them. But even the kid that was selling the tapes didn't know how to open it up and take the tape out. <laughs> That was the worst. He tried to buy a tape and they couldn't find the key. Oh, yeah. And you're like, just sell it to me like that. I'll break it when I get home. No, I can't. I can't. i got to put new tape in it. So <laughs> I've done a lot of stupid voices tonight. I'm sorry. So I'm sitting there in the tape section of Bradley's with $10 burning a hole in my pocket. I've got the Beatles Sergeant Pepper in one hand. And in the other hand, I've got Weird Al Yankovic's even worse. And I'm trying to decide, do I buy the Beatles or do I buy Weird Al Yankovic? Probably the only time in history that there's ever been a debate about which band to go with, yep. which, which musical act to go with. And I ended up buying the Weird Al tape. And it had a solid influence on my life. It really did. Imagine I mean, if you went with the Beatles. But I could have gone with the Beatles yeah. and got into the Beatles so much sooner. Thankfully, I went to my aunt's house. Uh, that night, and I explained to her the dilemma that I had. She had Sergeant Pepper. She dubbed me a copy, and the rest is history. But still, I just will always remember standing there in Bradley's with the two tapes in my hand, not being able to decide, do I go with the greatest band of all time, or do I go with the greatest parody artist of all time? And when you're a 10-year-old kid, as awesome as the Beatles are, Weird Al Yankovic is probably that much more awesome to a 10-year-old kid. So <laughs> in the long run, it all worked out. I'm just glad that I was able to... to you know, experience the Beatles as well as Weird Al, because otherwise we'd be celebrating like the 25th anniversary of the Even Worse album this weekend. And so, <laughs> well, we all did go to a Weird Al concert. True, that was a couple in, years that ago. was awesome. And uh, so, Modis, what was your first Beatles memory? Ah, uh, well, I was born while they were still playing live and stuff. But um, I remember from a very young age, probably about 1970, and uh, I had. My mother, who used to love, you know, music of all time, all kinds, and she would be putting on various Beatles albums and, of course, Elvis and, and stuff like that. But I remember She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. And I remember distinctly sitting with her in the kitchen singing that song. And, you know, as a kid, too, that's an easy song to, yeah, to know the lyrics to. Yeah. Uh, Matt, what was your first Beatles memory? Um, I don't know. I got a late start, I think. I, I remember my, my mother used to listen to it um, here or there, and I, I, I didn't like it just because, I don't know. I was at, at that point of age where I just didn't like anything my parents liked. Right. And then gradually those walls broke down. Well, you know, I, I've said in the past that there is, uh, and we've talked about this off the air, you and I, there seems to be certain bands that are benchmarks of your life. Uh, you know, when you're in eighth grade, you get into The Doors and Led Zeppelin. Uh, when you're in ninth grade, you discover the Steve Miller Band and Billy Joel. You know, right. it seems that there, there's always like these, these time periods in people's lives when you know that they're going to start discovering a certain type of music. W what would be the Beatles' time uh, if you were going to put a time? I, I would say Perfect. probably sixth, seventh grade is probably when most people yeah, yeah. discover the Beatles. I think so. Yeah, you would I feel agree. around the same. 
So uh, I know that with me, like, I didn't appreciate that. You know, I understood the impact that they had, but I didn't understand all the little nuances of how great they were until recently. And I said this morning, the 2009 remasters, uh, when they came out, you know, I, I always thought Paul McCartney wasn't really that great of a bass player. I thought he played bass because he was the third guitar player and somebody had to play bass. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, we've yeah. got George, who is a really great guitarist, and we've got John, who's playing banjo chords on a guitar. So that's kind yeah, of interesting and unique. Yeah, yeah, you're not going yeah, to get him to, to stop playing guitar. So we need somebody to play bass. So, Paul, you're elected. And so I think that that's, in my mind, that's kind of how I thought that it went. And then when these remasters came out and you're getting the Beatles music in stereo, what a difference it makes. And you can actually hear those Paul McCartney bass lines and you're like, wow. You know, it's unbelievable how well he can play that, that bass. And he plays that you know, little bass. I forget the name of it. but It's a Rickenbacker. No, that was Lennon's guitar. I'm talking about the little bass. Uh, it, it's uh, I can't think of the name of it. Uh, it's a certain type of instrument. It's not like a straight bass. It's a certain oh, type of instrument. I was going to say, uh, most of the time I've seen him playing a Rickenbacker. This is, uh, hold on, let me see if I can look it up. But, uh, you know, you're hearing these bass lines, and they're phenomenal. They're so much uh, more intricate and complex than you thought they were. And, and let's see here. A Hofner. Okay. That's what I'm thinking of. The, the, little, the little small thing that he always yeah. plays. Uh, so the, um, the, like if you listen to a song like Something, and then you hear the bass line in that, it's it's really all over the place. And I have much more appreciation for him now as a bass player than I did before. So it's... Uh, it's amazing what you can learn when you hear things in stereo instead of in mono. That goes for this show, too. When you listen to the stereo version of it, you can hear all of our uh, bodily sound effects. During the course it is of the a show. lot, actually. And the squeaking chairs. And, yeah, Yeah. well, the squeaking chairs you can hear anyway. That's going to happen no matter what. You can always did hear we, that. Did we say, like, year one where we were going to buy a Canon WD-40? <laughs> but... Taylor has it in his car. If he I always says on the air, he always has tape if any, and if anybody's listening, go to GoFundMe. <laughs> <laughs> buy, buy Spooky South Coast, a can of WD-40 for our chairs. Right. Go to GoFundMe.com slash Spooky South Coast. Make a donation and earmark <laughs> it that it's for WD-40 directly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so there you go. We're, we're going to take a break. When we come back on the other side, more Spooky South Coast. <laughs> WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Welcome back. Our number two is Spooky South Ghost. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa and science advisor, Matt Moniz. And uh, we are talking about the paranormal as we as we do each and every Saturday night. We were unable to be joined by our guest Ronaldo Lampus tonight uh, due to some technical difficulties. However, we will be speaking with him coming up uh, in the coming weeks. I'll find a way that we can reschedule him because I do want to talk to him about his theories of M- Moni. You had a chance to read some of the show notes there. He's he's got a different approach to it's the unique. idea, so that's why he's able to remove a ghost from anywhere because he thinks that there's just that. Yeah, greater energy field. So, an energy manipulator. 
So we'll we'll see what we can do about rescheduling him, and uh, we'll be able to speak with him hopefully at length about that topic. Uh, coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to rebroadcast an episode of Spooky South Coast from 2007, where we interviewed R. Gary Patterson about the Beatles' death clues and about whether or not Paul McCartney is actually dead, and the Paul McCartney that we know and love is actually a Toronto policeman. William Shears Campbell. So we'll talk, we'll actually play that interview uh, from 2007 coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, it's going to be, it's about what, 45 minutes? I think I said it was. Yeah, about yep. 40, 45 minutes. So just doing the math in my head. So we've got 50 minutes left. So we've got about five minutes in which we can get really weird. Do you think we can do that? Do you think we can get weird in five minutes? Sure. We don't need five minutes to get weird. That's true. We only need about five seconds. But let's give it a try anyway. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today. It's a wonderful, weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. The Week in Weird. All right, our first story this week is from the FearNet website. Fearnet.com, and I'm going to read this story only because I have such a hard time saying Necronomicon all the time, so it's going to make everybody laugh. Every time I mispronounce Necronomicon, everybody take a shot. We'll see if we can get to the story. So even if you have only a passing knowledge with the writings of H.P. Lovecraft, or maybe if you're an Evil Dead fan and who isn't, you'd probably be, you're probably familiar with the ancient occult book known as the Necronomicon, which figured in so many of the author's classic horror tales. Some of those stories hinted that the evil tome is kept under wraps in the library of the fictional Miskatonic University in Massachusetts, but there are some occult experts who claim the book is not only a legitimate item, but it really was buried beneath a New England college, and some say it's still there. The blog New England Folklore examines an urban legend fueled by hardcore Lovecraft fans who claim the Necronomicon is a genuine book of spells and rituals, that the author was actually a skilled occult practitioner, and that he hid a copy of the book in the tunnels beneath Bradford College, a small liberal arts school in Haverhill, Massachusetts. So, you know, it could actually be there. And that, of course, that website uh, is uh, run by our, the New England Folklore website is run by our friend Peter Muse, who we've had here on the program in the past. And uh, so you can check out his original website, newenglandfolklore.blogspot.com, to find more about whether or not the Necronomicon is hidden. And I said it three times. You did. Without mispronouncing it. So there you go. Very interesting. We should go dig it up. See what happens. Well. What's the worst that could happen? An army of deadites? Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. We'll just head down to S-Mart. We'll take care of everything. Shop smart. smart. Shop S-Mart. All right. Uh, let's see. Here's a story here. Uh, Matt Koss, I didn't realize that you were in Philadelphia this week. Uh, Apparently, Philadelphia <laughs> is now the city of brotherly self-love. Thank you, Huffington Post. On Monday morning, Vincent J. Wade, a 34-year-old New Jersey man, allegedly got wasted and crashed his car into a Pennsylvania crown fried chicken, which I don't know if that's anything like Kentucky fried chicken. But, uh, Philadelphia Ma- Philly Mag first reported, 10 things got a little out of hand or in hand, oh, if you I, will. I see what they did there. There's a video here, a not suitable for work video, that's taking a scene that shows a completely naked Wade who appeared to be choking his own chicken right in front of the chicken restaurant. 
According to the police report, quote, after the accident, the male operator exited the vehicle and began removing his clothing and yelling. He then attempted to drive off. However, someone was able to remove the keys and hold them until police arrived. Despite being naked at only 400 feet from an elementary school, he was charged with driving under the influence, but not indecent exposure or public lewdness. He was released from jail after posting a $500 bond. And, and so many jokes that we could make about that story that Huffington Post didn't even get to. <laughs> you know, they only got to the tip of that story. I always jokes. Uh, that's, I don't want to blow the joke load all at once. So there you go. There's another one. Real quickly here, a biker buried astride his beloved Harley in a plexiglass casket. Actually, this is the way that Moniz wants to go out. An Ohio motorcycle enthusiast family has carried out their father's long-laid and elaborate funeral plans. 18 years in the making, Bill Stanley of Mechanicsburg, Ohio, was buried Friday above the top his 1967 Harley-Davidson and encased in a giant plexiglass casket. A couple hundred people turned up at the funeral, which was held outside, so all of Stanley's biker friends could attend, two even arriving riding their own motorcycles. Now, this actually happened uh, in, in Randolph. There was a, a biker group. I'm not going to give away any names on the air, but... Uh, and one of their members died, and he wanted to be buried with his Harley. And instead, the mortician talked them into selling his bike and using the money to buy plots for all of them together so they could all be buried together. So that's what they ended up doing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, But this guy here, uh, Mr. Stanley here, is buried atop his Harley. So, that's. I mean, I love my bike, but not enough to be buried with it. But if I had a Harley, I might feel a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. So, again, you can go fundme.com slash... Get to my Harley. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that does it for the weekend. We are for this week. If you have any stories, you can just tweet them to us at SpookySC. And uh, if we use them on the air, we'll give you a thank you, a shout out. We'll retweet it. We'll tell people to follow you, whatever have you. All right, now let's go to 2007 and play a rebroadcast of a show we did back then when we talked to our Gary Patterson for the first time about the Beatles and the great Beatle death clues. And we'll talk to him about that. This is going to be like a little bit of a time warp for us. It's like going back in time to our younger days. And I was a terrible host back then, so I apologize if this is painful at all. Here we go. Our Gary Patterson, his first appearance on Spooky South Coast. He's the author of books such as The Walrus Was Paul, uh, Hellhounds on Their Trail, and Tales from the Dark Side. So, uh, Gary, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How are you? Well, we are excellent. As, as I was saying, it's it's been... My dream, personally, to have you come on our show, and I'm glad that you could finally join us to share some of these stories because they are fascinating. Well, thank you. Very kind to have me on. I'm looking forward to it. Now, what, what exactly is your background? I, I know you're a teacher. How did you get involved in documenting these, these rock and roll cases? Well, I think the first thing is I grew up at the perfect time for the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, and you heard these stories that were making a round into myth and then became legend. And actually, the whole thing for me started in a classroom experiment when I was doing a, uh, a topic on allegory, and I thought, well, you know, I need to reach outside the fairy queen, and let me go into pop culture, and let's do Paul is Dead, and some of the visual clues, and, and the class loved it. And the next thing I knew, I thought, well, this might, this might make an interesting book. So the book took out, and uh, did that with Simon & Schuster in New York. I've been with them since 97, and uh, I've had a great time with it, and, and developed the book into other myths and legends from rock and roll. It's always fascinating. Uh, and as you said, you started with the, the Paul McCartney, we'll call it a case, mm -hmm. uh, and how much uh, notification, I mean, how much uh, interaction did you have with anybody representing Paul McCartney or the Beatles? Well, actually, the Beatles don't like to talk about this topic very much. Uh, anything that I, I did involved people around the Beatles, like 
some members in the family, people who had worked with them. And, uh, but I found that they were amazed at some of the clues because in England, it was not as big as it was in the United States. And I did a radio show, a couple of shows in, in, with the BBC and in London. And one of the DJs over there told me, so, you know, we don't know anything about this. This is incredible. You know, I mean, how, and it, it's like an, an American phenomena. And, uh, so maybe, maybe it was designed for an American audience, but, uh, I know it was major league over here. And, and you know, the funny thing to me is it's still going on. Well, we are conspiracy theorists, uh, as a nation. Uh huh. So it doesn't surprise me at all. Well, you know, you got to look at the 60s. I mean, uh, Paul's dead rumors started in 69. So John Kennedy was killed in 63. And you had the Warren Commission report. And, you know, a lot of people automatically said, well, the Warren Commission's wrong. It's a conspiracy theory involving the CIA, Cuban immigrants, whatever, organized crime. And then in 68, you had the death of Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr. So to be in the proper mindset and to rid the world of fetal influences uh, was uh, something that could very well have happened in 1969. It was very believable. Today, it, it may not be as much, but in, in 1969, there was a strange coldness that went with it to think that uh, there could be secret government agencies that could be capable of doing that. And so, you know, suddenly, as a nation... You know, no longer can Americans accept anything at face value. And at the same time, uh, you know, the powers that be very, very aware of the counterculture and some of the key figures in it. Uh, and I know that John Lennon, during the course of his life, was the subject of numerous inquiries from the FBI and the CIA. Oh, exactly. I mean, uh, he even sent coffee to uh, <laughs> to a car with an undercover uh, agent and, and sent it to him because he knew he was going to follow it. And, uh you know, this was one thing. I mean, I'm, you know, we talk about a paranoid age, but if you look at Monterey in the Summer of Love, you know, look at the number of rock acts that were signed that became big at Monterey, and the artists were dead within two years. I mean, you take a look at Jimi Hendrix. Uh, he, he premiered at Monterey. He was dead. Uh, Mama Cass and Mama and the Poppers, you know. I mean, everybody thinks she's not a rock icon, but she had major links to the counterculture. She was dead. Otis Redding made his performance there. He was dead, I think, in uh, 67. Or 68. And then, uh, after Otis Redding, you had uh, Brian Jones with the Rolling Stones put on. He was dead in 69. So, I mean, it looked like a hit list just about. And of course, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy behind it, but it's just really odd that a number of the great rock on, uh, rock icons that started at Monterey were dead within three years. I mean, you have to look at it too. A lot of these deaths that have happened are due to the uh, excesses of the lifestyle that comes mm -hmm. with being a rock and roll star. But, I mean, it, it was kind of a new thing because you know, throughout throughout this nation's history, you know, music stars have always been seen, at, always seem to be, you know, a step above the common folks, just as we do with movie stars today. But I think that was really the first real excesses that you saw in music. I mean, for until that point, the drug addiction that was involved in the music industry was kind of, you know, swept under the rug. And now we're seeing these hard-partying rock stars, and a lot of them were a victim of that. But like you said, it is just eerie how many of them were all tied in and similar to each other. It was, and also it's kind of eerie to realize how many secret FBI files were kept on these artists, especially, you know, the number one artist besides John Lennon was Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix all had hundreds of pages of FBI documentation. And uh, if you remember... Uh, when Jimi Hendrix died, he died two weeks before Janis Joplin in 1970. And when Hendrix died, Joplin said, well, I'm glad I didn't die today because he'd got all the press. And she was dead two weeks later. And when Jim Morrison had heard the story, this uh, he was in Miami for his obscenity trial. And as he was 
hearing that Janice and Jimmy had died, he turned to his friends and said, you know, you're drinking with number three. Mm. And he was dead on July 3rd, 1971. It, it is eerie uh, how many rock stars have predicted their own deaths, and we'll get into a lot of that in, in the second hour. We'll talk about uh, Ronnie Van Zant and uh, his kind of ominous prediction, and, and also, of course, the day the music died as well. Uh, but getting back into the into the Beatles case and, and Paul McCartney's situation, now, if you want to believe this theory, and I, I take it that you don't believe this theory, but <laughs> if you want to believe this theory, uh, what it is is that in, uh, I believe, 1966 uh, is the date that they believe that Paul McCartney supposedly died in a, in a car crash, mm -hmm. and then he was replaced with a uh, Paul McCartney lookalike that actually won a, some kind of secret contest. I always love the secret contest. <laughs> How do you have a secret contest if a you're trying secret to secret contest in, in Canada, by the way? You know, that, that's how the story goes. But I, I think what you need to do is sort of set the stage. Why 1966? And the reason being 66 was the Beatles didn't do any live performances after 1966. And, I mean, they were tired of just the live shows. It wasn't fun anymore. And then they put themselves into the studio. And then look at the change in the music. I mean, you had Revolver, which was different from anything. I mean, Rubber Soul was the, was the beginning, but Revolver was totally different. And then when Sgt. Peppers came out, there was the Beatles with mustaches and beards, and the music was unlike anything. It wasn't She Loves You anymore. I mean, it's gone into a whole different area. And a lot of people thought, well, you know, this music's not the same. And they always were looking for a reason. So when the rumor came out that Paul McCartney had been killed in a car crash in 1966, that when this happened, uh, a lot of people believed it because they thought, well, you know, McCartney was the most popular Beatle after John had made a statement that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ. So he was the cute Beatle. He was the most popular one. But it still didn't make much sense because uh, why were the Beatles trying to get the message? And the idea was that Lennon and the other Beatles wanted to make sure that their fans got the message that they were forced to bring this imposter into the band to generate income for EMI, the British government, and that's where the conspiracy starts. And, and the first time you hear it, I mean, when I did, when I heard it the first time, I was right out of high school. So, I mean, I grew up and listening to the radio broadcasts, which I thought were almost chilling at the time. But I remember when Life Magazine came out with an article saying Paul was still with us. You know, you said, oh, my gosh, that was what a crazy rumor that was. So you normally think that a lot of people probably had way too much time on their hands and uh, they were coming up with clues that really were just silly. But when I did the book, I found out that you had clues that were totally ridiculous. And then you had clues that would be like God is listening or God is looking. Because if you show someone the yellow hyacinth flowers and say, it, it spells out Paul question mark, or if you turn it to the side, it's a P, you know, you may not see it until someone points it out and you say, okay, I can see it now. But, I mean, is it really there? Is it power suggestion? And the same thing with backward tracks on the album. But the thing that startled me was some of the clues that couldn't be explained. I mean, they were too clever to be coincidence. Exactly. Which, which means that the Beatles had actually planted the seed to have this and, for some reason, never talked about it again. And, I mean, I know that Paul McCartney still has fun with this because, if you remember the Simpsons show, I think it was in 1997, just having to be watching television with the Simpsons and Paul and Linda were on cartoon figures, and mm -hmm. Lisa wanted to become a vegetarian, so she asked Paul and Linda, you know, how's the best way to become a vegetarian? And Paul says, well, you know, if you play Maybe I'm Amazed Backwards, there's a ripping recipe for lentil soup. You know, I was like, oh, this is funny. But when the show ended, you could hear McCartney singing Maybe I'm Amazed, but then you heard this, heard this voice in the background going, I said, oh, my God, it's a backward track. And it was. And when you listen to it reversed, you hear Paul McCartney say, 
take one clove of garlic, <laughs> add one cup of pepper. And he goes through this whole recipe for lentil soup, and at the very end he says, oh, by the way, I'm alive. <laughs> you know, it, it, it really is interesting that they can have that kind of fun with it. Uh, if you want to look at it from the perspective of well, what we most commonly suggest is that it, it was somewhat you know, predetermined by the Beatles to do this, and it was their way of having fun. You know, one of the one of the theories that we actually were talking about this on the way in, uh, myself oh, and Matt Costa, we were talking about why did the Beatles have such a stark change in their music? And I had always heard, you know, that it, growing up, you know, well, they got into drugs. Well, they got into, you know, Buddhism, all these different reasons. But one of the standout reasons in my mind is that in 65, I think it was, they played Shea Stadium. And it was so bad they couldn't even hear themselves play. Mm-hmm. And the story that I heard, I don't know if it's urban legend or not, is that they just started playing like any crap because nobody could hear what they were playing anyway. So they were just having fun and just screwing around. And then they realized, you know, if this is the fan base that we have, we can just quote unquote screw around. We can do things that are different and experimental. And that that's kind. Of, and when they retreated into the studio, that's kind of you know the the rebirth of that. You too had a similar experience. Uh, with the Joshua Tree tour, when they realized how big they'd become and how they couldn't do it that way anymore, mm-hmm. that they went into the studio and they just totally revamped their image. So maybe that kind of set it up for them. But yeah, I, from what I was reading earlier, is there was a, a conscious effort to do this to put out this little quote-unquote hoax, and that they were going to eventually reveal that it all been in fun and there was just a, a, a fun game that they'd been playing with the fans. But then it just so happened that Charles Manson comes out and says that there's all these secret messages in Beatles songs saying that there's going to be a race war in America. Mm-hmm. And then they say, well, wait a minute now. If we admit to doing the quote-unquote Paul is dead stuff, then we're going to be just as scrutinized for possibly putting this other stuff in there as well. Oh, exactly. As a matter of fact, uh, Manson's attorney intended to subpoena John Lennon and Paul McCartney and bring him to California. Now, what would it be like if you were on the stand and they were asking you if you put hidden messages in Beatles songs? Yeah, to exactly. sort of alter perception. In other words, you know, and, and Lennon would say, well, you know, uh, we wanted people to think Paul was dead, but we didn't mean anything to Charles Manson. Well, you know, this would have been something that would have made him culpable for some reason. I mean, if it was an idea that it, a backward track could actually change some form of behavior. And, I mean, it was a questionable area, and they sure didn't need the negative publicity. So I think that, and plus in 1969, it was sue me, sue you stage. I mean, they weren't getting along at all anyway. But, you know, if you think of this, remember uh, How Do You Sleep, the John Lennon, when he says, those freaks was right when they said you was dead. Mm-hmm. And then Ringo Starr's song, Back Off Boogaloo, where Boogaloo was a code name that the other three Beatles had for McCartney. And uh, Ringo says, wake up, meathead, don't forget that you were dead. So if you take a look at those, I mean, it seems like someone knew something about some of the clues. And, and since they weren't getting along and since you had the the whole issue with the, the Manson murders, maybe it was a better time just to shut up and let the legend continue. And, and actually, to tell you the truth, I hope they never come clean on it because it's too much fun, you know? Exactly. I hate for them to, to ruin the whole the whole fantasy of it. I don't know if you're familiar with the comedian Robert Wall. Uh, yeah. He just put out a, a great HBO special, and in this special he's talking to a college classroom, and he says that throughout American history, when reality becomes legend, you know, you print the legend. Exactly. And that seems to be the case in this because it's going to endear, even if they did come out and say, yeah, it was all a hoax, it's still not going to quell, you know, this, this, the people that look at this information. What, what would you say is the first indication of these Paula's Dead rumors on a Beatles recording? I mean, we can go back to yesterday and today. 
And I mean, you got to remember some of this to me. You know, it's you find the clue, then you go back and you look at other albums. I mean, some people said, "Look at the Help album." Paul's the only one who doesn't have a hat. Well, you know, that's silly. But, but I mean, if you look at a lot of the albums, McCartney's portrayed completely different from the others. Either he's looking the other way or he's got a different background. But, I mean, that goes back to Help, and obviously the Beatles weren't playing it that far back. I think the Sgt. Pepper album, I mean, that's the one that I go back, that I say that, you know, there's, there's too many too many strange references on that album that it had to be planted. So I'll go back to 1967 in June with the release of Sgt. Pepper's. It's my beginning. Which Now, would that have been the first release after the supposed car accident? Yes, it would have been. And, uh, you know, when I was researching my book, I found that there was a rumor in England that Paul McCartney had been killed in January of 67 in a car accident on the M1 motorway, that uh, he hit icy roads and, and he was killed. And there was a, a plethora of people calling Apple trying to find out about McCartney. And it was so bad that uh, the Apple offices called at his home in St. John's Wood, and, and Paul said, no, I'm, I'm fine, I've been home all day. So I was just wondering, you know, if all that attention was going to McCartney and, and the idea he was dead, do you think the Beatles could have thought, hey, why don't we hide some clues and let's have some yeah, fun let's have some fun with it. I mean, obviously they knew that it would be an out, you know, just an outrageous uh, reaction to it. So, and what if they sold a lot of records? So, you know, the odd thing is, in 1967, the same year, Jim Morrison had a plan with the Doors to announce that he was dead. So they would sell more Doors records because when the rock star dies, they make millions more. Look exactly. at Johnny Ace, the late great Johnny Ace, and and look at Buddy Holly. So I mean, it was a a pretty good formula, wasn't it? Uh, and it always has worked uh, through history. But I, I can understand, you know, some of these clues that they say are on, especially the Sgt. Pepper album mm -hmm. cover. Uh, there are some that are that do stand out right away. I mean, the fact that the only instrument represented. Uh, on the album cover in Flowers is the bass uh, directed as if it was being played left-handed. Exactly. Uh, if you count the strings, have you noticed that? I mean, a bass guitar has four strings. Mm -hmm. The Beatles had four members. But if you look at the bass guitar, it has three strings. Oh, wow. I didn't even... So there's a missing string from the bass. And, and uh, supposedly the little Hindu statue is uh, supposed to be... Vishnu? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the, the story that they try to perpetrate is that it's Kali the Destroyer. Mm -hmm. With the left-hand path pointing up to McCartney. And the other left, the other hand pointing to the wax figure of McCartney mm -hmm. in the background. And there's all these little twists and turns uh, of that album cover. Uh, but some of them do tend to get a little bit, as you said, a little bit like you're reading too much into it. The fact mm -hmm. that he's holding a black instrument uh, when the rest of them aren't. The fact that he's holding the only wood instrument signifying the wood of a coffin. Yeah, and that's where you get pretty far out. Exactly. Some of them are getting deeper, but there's so much stuff that does stand straight out on that album, both musically and on the cover. Oh, uh, exactly. If you look at his left hand at the bottom of the, the oboe he's playing, he's got three fingers showing, you know, which is another three. And then, of course, you go to come together, one and one and one is three. So, I mean, and then if you even look at the cover, it looks like if you look to the far left side of the red hyacinth flowers, it looks like a three in front of it. And also, it doesn't say the Beatles, it just says Beatles, which represents that maybe there's three Beatles there and not four. So, we can say that that might be guided looking, okay? And when you take a look at all this, one of the one of the more fascinating things is the bass drum. And this is what really got me, because when I saw the bass drum and did the research on this, I found out that the Beatles obviously had to plan this. It was completely ingenious. And someone in rock and roll history is not getting a fair credit for it because it's chilling when you look at it. And, you know, what would be the odds that of the four Beatles, 
McCartney is the only one under the open hand over his head. Which, of course, signifies death in the Far Eastern. Yeah, that's what was fun, because Locke Magazine put this out in 69, and said, you know, an open hand over a person's head is a symbol of death in Far Eastern societies, or it's a sign of benediction when a body is placed into the grave where he makes a sign of the cross. I'm looking at this, I'm saying, well, you know, uh, how can you actually test to see if that's true? Because, you know, it's basically rumors. But for me, the open hand picks McCartney out of the other four. I'll give it that. And uh, not only at the time, too, the Beatles were starting to get into the into the Eastern religion as well. Exactly. So the Far Eastern references, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, all that stuff that you know had validity with it. But when you look at the crowd, I mean, the question was, the Beatles chose all these people to be on this album cover, and they had to get release forms. I know that Mae West wrote, she said, what would I be doing in a Lonely Hearts Club band? And then they finally pleaded with her to have her pictured on there. So she agreed that... I mean, you have Marilyn Monroe, you have Dion from Dion and the Belmont, you have Aleister Crowley, you have <laughs> uh, gurus all the way through it, and, and what it becomes is like a yin-yang. I mean, you have uh, figures who are evil, you have figures who are good, you have the beautiful, you have the ugly, you have the, com- the comedians, you have the tragic figures, and it's like the opposite forces of the universe. And if you look in the picture, you see Lewis Carroll, and Lewis Carroll was uh, John Lennon's, one of his favorite uh, authors, and he loved the wordplay, and, of course, Lewis Carroll's famous book was Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass. So you take a mirror, and a mirror gives you the clue where you lay the album cover down, you take a straight-edge mirror, place it in the center of Lonely Hearts, and look from left to right in the reflection of the glass to the album cover, and it spells out a hidden message. And lonely becomes numeral I, or one, and then it says O-N-E again, which is another one, so it would be one, one, then the next figures are I, X, which is Roman numeral 9. So it's 119. And then you look to the right, and it has He, Die. And between He and Die is a diamond-shaped arrow that points straight up to Paul McCartney, straight down to the grave. And the first time I saw that, I thought, well, you know, if this is a grave scene, as the rumor goes, then the base room would have to be Tombstone. And Peter Blake designed the entire cover, except the drum skin was designed by a painter whose name was Joe Epgrave. And it sounds suspiciously like Epitaph <laughs> and Grave. Yeah, it does. It does, doesn't it? And the other thing is that that was the only thing that he designed. There were two drum skins designed for the cover of the album, and both drum skins are completely different except for the phrase Only Hearts, which had to be there for the mirror image. So when I first saw it, I thought, well, it's one. Okay, maybe one of the Beatles, the one with nine letters. He died. Well, McCartney had nine letters. But see, that's not what you find on a tombstone. What you find on a tombstone is, well, the name of the person and the date of his death. Mm -hmm. So if the diamond-shaped arrow points him out, then it would be McCartney. And let's take the two ones and put them together, where 1-1 becomes 11-9, which would be November the 9th. Now, what made that very chilling to me was that when I was researching the book, I found that there was evidence of a car crash McCartney had on November the 9th. And it's in two, two other Beatle books, uh, Dowding's Beatle songs. And I thought, oh my gosh, November the 9th, 119. Well, to make it even stranger, November the 9th, 1966 was a Wednesday, and this accident supposedly occurred at 5 o'clock in the morning. So, you turn the album cover over on its back. It was the first album in rock and roll history that ever had lyrics printed on the jacket. First time ever. So the Beatles pictures were made. McCartney has his back to the camera, and one of the clues would be that he was an imposter. He's different from the others. He, he, his face had scars from plastic surgery. Some of this was totally ridiculous. But the funny thing was that George Harrison is standing there pointing with his thumb. 
and they superimposed the lyrics across the Beatles and the line from the opening line from She's Leaving Home that, that uh, Harrison's pointing to says, Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, it's, it's, well, it's yeah, would that not be odd? Yeah, it's definitely uh, synchronicity there. Uh, but also, I heard another story uh, that there was actually a friend of Paul McCartney's uh, who was involved in a moped accident with him. Uh, uh, Tara, Tara Brown. Tara Brown. Mm-hmm. So maybe, yeah. and that that is supposed to signify that accident, that that's what they're talking about. Well, it wasn't on November 9th. Uh, the thing was that on that accident, McCartney had smashed his upper lip and had to grow a mustache to cover the scar. And when the mustache was, was shaven on the uh, White Album, there was a scar there. And a lot of people thought, look, see, there's plastic surgery, there's yeah. the scar. But, you know, the other story of Tara Brown was that he was the figure that John Lennon wrote about and he blew his mind out in a car because Tara Brown was killed running a red light in his Lotus. Supposedly on LSD at the time? Supposedly. That's how he blew his mind out. And uh, in the car with him was a beautiful model whose name was Suki Poitier. And she survived without a scratch, but she'd had a premonition in the accident that I think she said three other men would die because of her. So she dated Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> he died. He dated, she dated Brian Jones. He died. Then she was married and she was despondent one day because her husband had cheated on her. She was driving the car, and she told her friends that she was going to commit suicide and take her husband with her, and she drives off this cliff, killing them both. So sometimes premonitions uh, in your lotus may have something with that, but, I mean, that's a pretty strange story as well, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Uh, so let's, let's as you started to allude to, let's get into some of the actual music on the Sgt. Pepper album. Sure. And, of course, right away at the beginning, we're being presented with the idea of this is not the Beatles. This is Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band, and that there is no you know, Paul McCartney, there is no John Lennon, and the lead singer is somebody known as Billy Shears, and he's introduced by Paul McCartney. And, and some people have speculated that this Billy Shears is involved and he's the replacement. Uh, how do those stories come about? Well, you know, first of all, uh, someone had written an article saying that Billy Shears was the son of Philip Shears in Chelsea, and that he was the winner of this Paul McCartney lookalike contest. So when the Beatles go Billy Shears and introduce him, what's the first thing he says? What would you do? What would you think if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Right? Didn't even think of that. Yeah, because I mean, what if he's not as good as McCartney? Would you not buy our records anymore? You know. So he gets by with a little help from his friends, which means the Beatles cover it up. So that's pretty odd, but it, it, it goes into that whole pattern. So, you know, the other thing was, uh, let's see, Fred Labor mentioned uh, William Campbell, who was the winner of a Paul McCartney lookalike contest in in Canada. But, you know, you can't find any records of anything like this. And, of course, it's a, it's a great urban legend. It's passed down into the role of myth that people have heard it and accept it. When uh, I Am the Walrus came out, it was a rumor that walrus was Greek for corpse. And... It's not that people accepted it. I mean, Walrus is Scandinavian and not Greek, but still the whole idea was that a lot of this was just accepted. And uh, I guess I guess it created a lot of fun with people sitting in their dorm rooms playing their records backwards, listening to it, you know, getting those chilly moments. But, uh, you know, a lot of it can be discredited, but some of it, you know, obviously shows the Beatles provided the foundation. It's funny, too, because uh, some of the more extravagant stories really get deep into it. They say that this... Uh this Billy Shears, this William Shears Campbell mm -hmm. that won the contest in Canada uh, was actually a member of the uh, 
the police in Montreal and mm-hmm. uh, in Ontario, mm-hmm. and so that when you open up the jacket and and uh, Paul McCartney has the OPP badge, mm-hmm. and, and some people say it's officially uh, OPD, officially pronounced dead, mm-hmm. and then some people say it's the Ontario Police Department, and then it's actually mm-hmm. Billy Shears. I mean, how much can we put into this? I mean, in, in your research, have you found was there actually a officer? Wouldn't there be records of an officer named? Sure, there would be, but there's not. You exactly. know, and when I think the funny thing to me is the badge really says OPP, and uh, which would be Ontario Provincial Police. Okay, nothing about a police department. But this, the thing that really surprised me was in a Life magazine article that came out in November of '69. McCartney said, "And I'm supposed to be wearing this silly badge that says OPD." He said, "Perhaps it's due for Ontario Police Department." So I mean, here he is saying it was OPD when it was really OPP. So he he helped perpetrate. A little bit more of that himself. Oh, sure he did. I mean, in that article he was talking about, well, you know, on the album cover Magical Mystery Tour, it was John dressed in black. It wasn't me. But in 1980, in an interview in Chicago, one of the DJs asked McCartney, they said, were you the walrus? He said, of course, I've always been the walrus. He said, we were filming the Magical Mystery Tour album, so I picked up this walrus head and black outfit and put it on. You know? <laughs> now, isn't that strange? Yeah, it's... It's, it's revisionist history, isn't it? And he he certainly has done his part without without coming out clean, but... You know, they tried to really play with that walrus legend uh, quite a bit. And what we're going to do, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, actually, we have a call. So let's take the call, and then after the call, we'll take a break, and then when we come back, we'll discuss the walrus situation a little bit more. But let's uh, see who this is. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Good. How are you? All right. You know who this is? Hi, Keith. Hi. How are you doing? <laughs> All right. It's our special guest host for next week. Oh, good. Yes. So uh, do you have a question for Gary? Or? Yes, I do, actually. Um, well, it's more of a comment. Uh, I want to see if I'm right, though, about the uh, Paul is dead rumor. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, people say that one piece of evidence that he was an imposter was that his uh, bass playing sound seemed to change, I guess, uh, after circa 66 to 69. I believe the true explanation for that was because he was playing a Hopner bass, mm-hmm. and he retired that in 1966 and started playing a Reichenbacher. I, I believe that's uh, the reason why his the sound of his bass playing changed. Well, I mean, I think that's a very astute observation. But, you know, we also have to think about this. If McCartney, the super talented Paul McCartney, died in 1966, what super incredible timeless Beatles song, songs did he compose before 66? Well, you may say yesterday. But the imposter who came in in 67, Helder Skelter, I mean... Think of some of the great Beatles songs, the whole second side of Abbey Road. I mean, to find a guy who was an orphan, who won a Paul McCartney look-alike contest, and who was an incredible writer, kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that is interesting. Absolutely. And it's, plus, think of Live and Let Die, you know? I mean, well, yeah, look at his work post-Beatles, too. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I mean uh, we'll, we'll forgive him for some of the stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, biker like an icon. Okay, we'll scratch that one. But, you know, he had, I mean... <sighs> It, it's kind of funny because everybody said, well, the imposter wasn't as talented. I guarantee you can name many more fabulous Beatles standards after 66 than you can before. And also, isn't it, uh, one of the other things I read is that uh, in 66 with the release of Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, there was a little bit more onus put on McCartney to play a more melodious bass. It was. I mean, first of all, I mean, Pet Sounds almost ended the Beatles. McCartney was flying back saying, oh, my God, how can we talk that? How can we talk that? that? That was the, the pervading spirit when they went in the studio to record Sgt. Pepper, right? To beat Pet Sounds. And then when Sgt. Pepper came out, Brian Wilson, oh, my God, how can we beat this? How can we beat this? Because <laughs> he didn't understand 
exactly the importance of pet sounds to the Beatles. And, of course, then Wilson put on the headphones and listened to pet sounds continuously for over 24 hours and, and had a breakdown because of it. So, I mean, you take these two creative forces, the Beach Boys and, and the Beatles, and the competition that went there. But didn't you realize that after the Beatles explored all this incredible music with uh, Sgt. Peppers, they could never perform live again? They couldn't do this stuff live. Well, exactly. These days, you can be experimental and recreate sure. it on the stage, but this kind of stuff, back in 67, 68, no way. No way. And, they, and their fan clubs would write in and they would say, look, the Beatles can't go back. They have to keep exploring. They have to keep breaking new ground. And how could they beat Sgt. Peppers? I mean, what more could you do? No one had ever accomplished that. So eventually, they just go back to the guitar, bass, and drum sound, you know, and they had done it, but they'd also destroyed themselves as far as performing. Didn't they call themselves the Beatles because they started out having the same continuous beat in, in all of their songs? Well, now I've not heard that. I've heard that. I've heard it was called the Beatles because they liked Buddy Holly and the Crickets, and they thought you know it was one of their favorite bands, Crickets, Beatles. That goes together. I've heard that too. I've heard both. Mm -hmm. And then they also there's a rumor that uh, they named it after the motorcycle gang in uh, the Wild One with Marlon Brando, who were called the Beatles. So I mean, there's so many urban legends that go along with the name of the band. But did you know that Buddy Holly almost called his band the Beatles? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> that was one of the titles. So, you know, and oh, by the way, uh, the first song ever recorded by the Beatles, they borrowed a friend's uh, tape deck, went into their house, and they recorded, I think it was John's house, and they recorded That'll Be the Day of Buddy Holly. So I guess they had this really, and of course, Paul McCartney owns the catalog for Holly today. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Keith, for checking in. Thank you very much. We will talk to you next week, and we'll uh, we'll talk about your class as well. We'll see you then. And I want to thank you for having me on your show the other night. Keith. Oh, yeah, you were a great guest. I, I know that's going to be a fantastic show. Is, I just, is there uh, a planned air date for that yet, Keith? Uh, I think it's going to be, in, uh, as far as I know, in maybe two weeks. Okay, and then it'll be on your website once, yes. uh, once it airs. We'll, we'll upload it very soon. Okay, and we'll put a link on Spooky South Coast as well. Okay, great. All right, thank you, Keith. Thank you. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. All right, we will take a quick break. On the other side, we will get more into the Beatles. We'll talk about the walrus. Uh, who was the walrus? Was it Paul? Was it John? What does it all mean? We'll get into it with our Gary Patterson in just a moment, right here on Spooky South Coast. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. I wasn't really dead. You remember when you were with the Beatles? And you were supposed to be dead. You play some song backwards and it says, Paul is dead. Take this, brother. May it serve you well. Alright, welcome back into Spooky South Coast, the audio work of the silent assassin Matt Costa, guaranteeing that we will be sued by the mighty triumvirate that is uh, Michael Jackson, Yoko Ono, and Paul McCartney. So uh, we are talking with our Gary Patterson about the, well, right now we're talking about the Paul is Dead case, uh, whether or not Paul McCartney is departed and the person who we know and love as Sir Paul is actually an imposter. Uh, we'll talk more about other rock and roll legends and curses in the next hour. Um, now, Gary, we were talking before the break about the walrus, uh, the song I Am the Walrus, and some of the inner hidden meanings behind it. Uh, and, and as you said, you know, some people said that walrus was Greek for, for dead, is that what you said? Greek for corpse. For corpse. And then uh, there was also speculation that the there was another word for walrus is morse. And if you take the E off it, it's mors, which is Latin for dead. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, there's all these different little inner readings to it, but on the whole, without reading into that, all those scenarios, what do you think the song I Am the Walrus is about face value? Well, I think that face value is that uh, John Lennon said that everyone was going through their songs trying to find all these hidden meanings, so let's make it really hard for them, and here's a song called I Am the Walrus, have fun with it, you know? And with Goo Goo Kachub and everything else with it, so uh, I think that According to Lennon, it was just a collection of, of strange lines and, and put it in there to, to create a Lewis Carroll, uh, James Joyce type uh, literature feedback with the, with the whole idea. I don't think there's anything to it. I mean, I've heard that Goo Goo Tube was supposed to be from Finnegan's Wake, the last words that Humpty Dumpty said before the crash. Okay, So you have that line. And then there's a reference... Uh, that came out in Life Magazine, which you can't really find a book on Scandinavian symbolism, Vikings, I suppose, but that walruses were supposed to be harbingers of death, and that when Viking hunters found a walrus, that they would turn back and go home. So the walrus is a very misunderstood creature, obviously, in symbolism. But uh, I'm the walrus is one of the great ones. And also there was a, a myth perpetrated, too, that uh, if indeed Paul McCartney was involved in a car crash, that the actual car crash happened on a Tuesday, and the autopsy was performed on Wednesday at 5 o'clock. And so, therefore, when he says stupid bloody Tuesday, he's referring to the the stupidity surrounding the circumstances of Paul McCartney's crash. Yeah, the stupid bloody Tuesday, according to the rumor that uh, Paul and Ringo had gotten into a major argument, and McCartney leaves the studio and gets in his Aston Martin and takes off, and the accident occurs as he left it sometime before uh, midnight, and the accident would happen then, and then he was uh, pronounced dead on a Tuesday at five o'clock. So, I mean, you have that as as one of the others too. So, and uh, you know, there's so much fun to this. Like when uh, the White Album came out, and Ringo had the song "Don't Pass Me By," and he says, "I'm sorry that I doubted you. I was so unfair. You were in a car crash, and you lost your hair." And that was supposed to be a reference to uh, a head injury. But if you know anyone from uh, Great Britain, they'll tell you that the phrase "losing your hair" means to lose your temper. <laughs> so. You know, uh, one person that you asked me, you know, I talked to someone, one person that uh, was pretty close to the Beatles is Bill Harry. Are you familiar with Bill? No. He created Mercy Beat Magazine. Okay. And uh, he was the one who introduced John Lennon to Steve Sutcliffe. And he was telling me all the stories of putting the Beatles together and doing the Mercy Beat, Mercy Beat Magazine. And, you know, he's really into the idea that when Sutcliffe died, the Beatles had gotten together and did a seance, tried to contact him. So, I mean, you got some spooky stuff there, but, uh, but Bill's a really good source because he's still close to Paul McCartney today and Yoko and, and Cynthia, which I, I'm sure is pretty hard to be, you know, close to both wives, you know. Yeah, exactly. But he is, and he's, he's a pretty good insider. He really enjoyed the book The Walrus with Paul. I'm trying to get him down and say, look, tell me the reason. I know you know. But then again, there's a part of me who doesn't want to force the issue with it. But, I mean, obviously he knew that there was, that the Beatles had planted something. That makes it kind of fun, too. And, and speaking of planning something, of course, the most famous rumor surrounding the I Am The Walrus song is that if you take the final minute or so, uh, as all this convoluted noise is coming together, you can supposedly reverse it, and you hear, Paul is dead. Well, if you listen to the end of it, without reversing anything on I Am The Walrus, if you listen to the end, there's some lines from uh, King Lear, and you'll hear these actors, and one actor says, Bury my body. And then a few seconds later, you hear a voice go, Oh, untimely death. And then a voice goes, What? Is he dead? As it ends up. And then, of course, you have the backward part, or 
it's not really backwards, but you hear a chant where the Beatles are saying, everybody's got one. And a lot of people smell if they were saying, everybody smokes pot or whatever, but it's yeah. everybody who's got one. And when you play it backwards, uh, it mentions that phrase. It says, Paul is dead. It's like, Paul is dead, ha ha, Paul is dead. So you hear that backwards. I think that's what you were talking about. Okay, now I don't, uh, I don't listen to music backwards. It's just something that I have. I, it freaks me out. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I had, I've been listening to Revolution Number no. 9 prior <laughs> to the show, and that just had me creeped out. But, uh, our, our producer here, the silent assassin, Matt Costa, has actually reversed the end of I Am the Walrus, and he's going to play it for us. Okay. So I might take my headphones off if it gets too much for me. But okay. Here we go. We're going to run that for you. you're listening into it and you're trying to hear something, you can certainly hear things in there. Sure you can, especially uh, if someone tells you what to hear before it's played backwards. Well, too. I mean, we go through that in paranormal investigating with EVP work. Sure. You know, you never want to tell somebody what they're supposed to hear in an EVP. You want to get their you know, their impression. Exactly, exactly. And with that in mind, we actually have a lot of paranormal investigators that listen to our show and they have sophisticated audio equipment and uh, I'm sure we'll get in a, a lot of trouble legally. Who actually owns the rights right now to the Beatles music? Uh, Michael Jackson. Did he? I, I heard he was trying to sell it to Sony to try to make up some of his debt to them from his uh, his contract they tried to get out of. So it may be in the process of being so, but I think he still owns the rights. To right, well, you know, Mike, if you have to sue us, you have to sue us. We'll take <laughs> we'll take the publicity that comes along with it. But if anybody that has these audio programs, if you want to take that little clip and listen to it and try and see what you can find, do it. Send it back to us, and, and we'll play. Because we'd love to get together with you sometime, Gary, and just break all this audio down. That would be and great. Maybe do like a little special where we can record it. And then once we get it in the can, then we can try to get the permission to actually air it somehow. <laughs> sure. I think that, you know, one thing you may check with, I mean, I know that with my attorneys and, and copyright and everything else and Simon Schuster, that if you're playing a clip and it's purposes for analysis for educational purpose, which you're doing to your audience, I don't think you're going to have a problem with that. Plus, you're not playing the whole song. You're not making it available. So. You know, so you know they can be recorded. I'm sure of that. So our, our science advisor Matt Moniz has been trying to convince me of that for a week, and for a week now I've been telling we can't take the risk, we can't <laughs> take the chance. And so if if your legal department has been telling you this, and then we're we're going to go with their word, and, and so we'll definitely try to get together with you and uh, and, and break these down and analyze it. I mean, well, I can tell you this also: I've done hundreds of radio shows that have been on this topic, and I don't know of any that have ever gotten in trouble by doing it. So. Excellent. Excellent. Does that make you feel better? Oh, absolutely. All right. That's and, great. And uh, we uh, 
we're coming up on a news break here. Uh, we have sure. to take a break at the top of the hour. And generally what we do is we do a segment starting off the second hour called The Week in Weird, where we read some of the stranger stories of the week. But because the subject matter that we're dealing with tonight is so weird and because it's so great for us to have an opportunity to combine our love of rock and roll and the strange and the paranormal, we're going to just can The Week in Weird and keep going with you uh, in the second hour with more stories about the Beatles and Lennon Skinner, the Allman Brothers, Jim Morrison... Buddy Holly, Big Bopper, Richie Valens, we so much stuff that we can cover. And if you uh, can't hear the entire show and you want to catch some of it online later on, uh, we'll have it all posted up tomorrow at SpookySouthCoast.com on iTunes as well. We make it all available as a free podcast uh, for anybody that wants to listen. So, And, and Gary, uh, anytime too uh, as well if you want to take some of the, the show and use it you know, in your own circumstances, feel free to do that. As well. Uh, well, thank you. And uh, so... Just real quick before we hit the news break, we've got about three minutes, uh, trying to finish up the idea of the walrus. Uh, now, in the song Glass Onion, Paul McCartney, uh, I'm sorry, John Lennon comes straight out and tells us, here's another clue for you all, the walrus was Paul. Mm-hmm. And then in the song, God, uh, the song God, he says that he was the walrus. That's right, I was the, wa- I, I, I was the walrus, and now I'm just John. <laughs> so, so, I mean, they're having to play with the word walrus, obviously. I mean, when I think of the walrus, and I know of Lewis Carroll, I think of the walrus Carpenter. You know? that's, that's what I always assumed the song was, that it was John's attempt at being Lewis Carroll-ish. Mm-hmm. And of course, the walrus fools a bunch of oysters, you know, and I just wonder how many people were the oysters that took it all in and believed it, you know, so uh, that, <laughs> that's kind of interesting too, isn't it? Absolutely, and and so in your final if you, in your final analysis of the, the walrus situation, uh, do you think that it just was something that gained a little bit of steam and they just kept it going? I think it was. And uh, the black walrus outfit, he was the only one in black, so the black symbol goes through with it. Uh, maybe a little Lewis Carroll play on the album cover that goes along with the, with the thing, too. And, you know, it made it a lot of fun. But I think what was really funny was when uh, Glass Onion came out in 68 on the White Album, and when uh, uh, Lennon sings, here's another clue for you all. What always puzzled me was the reference to here's another clue, because the rumors were not known about until 1969. A year later. So they'd already started right. planting the seeds. Exactly. So when Lennon says, here's another clue for you all, that implies... Go back and find the other one. Exactly. Yeah. And no one knew about it until 69. And so it's, it's definitely... And as I was saying to, to Matt Cost earlier tonight, that if it was an all-preplanned uh, idea, then that makes I Am the Walrus one of the greatest songs ever written. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, for now, we'd like to say, stay spectacular, everybody. And the silent assassin, Matt Costa, is going to take us out to the strains of Revolution Number 9. Number 9, 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 number 9,
Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. 